When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking new governments, strikes, energy bills, and UCAS data. It's all coming up. Um, You know, there's a list of different types of these kind of non-domestic energy arrangements. And they've forgotten students in halls. They've forgotten the circa 550,000 students in halls. Now, look, I don't know whether that's deliberate or whether that is accidental and they've just forgotten that group of people. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to open the red box of policy this week, three fabulous guests as always... In Hendon, it's Caroline Upton, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Middlesex University. Caroline, your highlight of the week, please. OK, so this has been the week that, for me, has really felt like we're getting out and about and meeting in person. And uh, I have been to uh, two away days and a reception and a, a, a theatre performance this week. And the sheer joy of actually mixing with colleagues, uh, collaborators, real people, um, has, has really lifted my week. Lovely. And listeners should be aware, I am on the governing body of Middlesex University. Uh, somewhere in the southwest of England, no one quite knows where, is David Kernahan, uh, acting editor of Wonky. David, your hire to the week. Well, the tweet this morning from the House of Commons that said that they're looking for a new chair for the Education Committee. As somebody who has watched a lot of Education Committee hearings, this is very exciting news for me. Mm, and we'll come back to come back to why in a bit. Uh, and uh, checks notes. Eating tofu in an upscale cafe in Islington. It's uh, Wonky's associate editor, Jim Dickinson. Jim, you're hired of the week, please. Yes, morning, Mark. So, so the other week, right, so Iceland had a deal on crates of 24 cans of lemon Fanta. And I ordered it and they cancelled. And then I ordered it and they cancelled. And I kept doing this, thinking at some point they would refund me. And then yesterday, a man appeared at the door with six crates of lemon fanta so i now have 144 cans of lemon fanta in the house there you go <laughs> we start the week with a new government and a big reshuffle caroline what's going on okay so this has been top of everybody's news this week and uh fascinating to watch it all play out it's been uh, an amazing series of of uh cliffhangers for us um and playing out at high speed so I don't think anybody will have missed that Rishi Sunak has um, replaced Liz Truss as PM, but we've also been watching the other pieces fall into place. So Kit Malthouse, after a very short tenure, um, has gone, as has Jacob Rees-Mogg at Bayes. Um, we have uh, the newest the newest face, really, in the lineup, Gillian Keegan, um, at DfE, and Grand Shapps taking the lead at Bayes. Um, we Gillian Keegan's a bit of an unknown quantity, but but obviously has a history in apprenticeships, which should be quite interesting to bring to bear in a new role. Um, Grant Chaps, we've seen in lots of roles before, um, but not this one yet. So we'll see what he does with that. 
The news this morning, obviously, is all about Sue Ella Braverman, who, despite falling on her sword just a week ago, seems to be reinstated as Home Secretary, which um, is a whole new version of falling on your sword for me. Um, it's really hard to know, isn't it, where, where universities are going to end up in all of this, because the, the general uh, the general conversation I'm hearing is, says that, that universities are not high up the agenda, and you can see why. Um, with the the war in Ukraine, the economy, the cost of living crisis, and the general instability around government, but um, I think it's going to be really important for us to try and put ourselves into a position of of uh, significance in driving that those positive changes to get out of the uh, the current crisis. Yeah, at, at at time of recording, it's not clear exactly who's going to be taking on the the HE brief in. DFE, or indeed, who's going to be taking on science in Bayes? There's clearly some uh, clearly some dispute about that. But we do know that Robert Halfon is a new minister in um, in DFE, likely to take responsibility for skills, and that's that's the reason why the chair of the select committee is is open, as that, that's what he was doing before. Um, but if Robert Halfon does have higher education, what could we be expecting, DK? So, big, interesting headline in the Times this morning. We've recorded this on Thursday morning, if anyone's not clear on that. Um, that Sunak does appear to be pushing heavily into the skills agenda, as he did during the leadership campaign in the summer. It's not quite the same as the, the Boris uh, Johnson levelling up skills stuff, but it is near enough as makes no odds. Um, it does look like the emphasis on skills, particularly on adult skills provision and on vocational routes to, um, to, um, to qualification and to employment are still going to be up there in the list of, uh, priorities. And that's interesting. I mean, given obviously, um, Gillian Keegan's background as an apprentice herself and also somebody who did a mid-career quasi MBA at the London Business School where she met Justin Greening and Anne Milton, which is why she became a Conservative MP. Uh, so that's all very interesting stuff. On the HE front of this kind of messaging, we get a repeat of the low quality courses stuff. Um, this is quite canny from Rishi Shunak's team in that it is stuff that is happening already. It is basically the B3 stuff, which has all been re-announced. Um, a little note at the moment as we're speaking it appears andrea jenkins is still knocking about in dfe doing something uh quite how those roles are going to split between halfen and uh jenkins as regards fehe skills the lifelong loan entitlement which we're still awaiting a consultation response about and all the rest of the stuff that they do it remains to be seen i like the idea of a dedicated minister for higher education or even for higher education and further education. I'm not fussy, but I'm not entirely thrilled with the prospect of either of those two taking on the roles. For, as I said at the top, for people who've watched a big chunk of education uh, committee, we've seen a slow I think it's fair to say a decline in quality over the years that Halfen has been chair. Um, it has been obsessed on the same few, um, issues, um, again and again and again. We hear about degree apprenticeships, 
um, which are good and wonderful things, but are a small component of the wider post-16 education offer and about whichever of the Culture Wars stories happens to be in the front pages the week that they have the inquiry. And it doesn't look like we're going to get any respite from that and uh, Half and, and Jenkins otherwise, even though um, Gillian Keegan as Secretary of State is notably not engaged in that kind of uh, knockabout end of education policy. So, Jim, I mean, isn't the real problem here that um, no matter who's doing what in, in what job, there's there's no money left? <laughs> well, I mean, yes. So, um, obviously, you know, one of the other things that we found out this week is that the Treasury has a a list of, I can't remember what it was, something like 150 um, ideas to save money. Not dissimilar to, um, you know, my own article on the site over the summer, which was 101 ways for to, to get... Um, it was actually 104, <laughs> so it's even closer. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, so, so who knows uh, what's in there? And, you know, there, there, there might there, there might even be um, some modelling of Rishi Sunak's original ideas, which were more dramatic around extracting more money out of graduates in terms of their student loan repayments than we ended up over the summer. So, they, you know, they might be coming to raid graduates uh, again. And, and I have to say on that, you know, that, that there was a moment when Rishi Sunak took over the other day where he said, you know, we will not be loading the costs of today onto the generation of tomorrow. Uh, you know, saying that whilst busily in the background, uh, the Treasury is implementing changes to the student loan system, which we'll see uh, precisely more of that uh, in terms of uh, higher education. But no, I mean, look, there's no money left. So, you know, what that does to the sort of rollout of uh, the lifelong loan entitlement, um, who knows? Um, and, you know, in a way, the stuff about low-value courses... Um, if you do it dramatically, in theory, saves a bit of money. Uh, and if you just, you know, kind of put your sticker on what OFS has been doing all summer, that is, you know, that doesn't cost you any money. So, you know, to the, it, it's not clear for in, in higher education terms, certainly on the kind of teaching and learning side, uh, that there's much here that would uh, require extra resource. The big question is whether or not, as I say, they come for savings. And the, and the truth about that is not really anything left in the in the sort of revenue, the traditional revenue budget in DfE for HE. All they would be able to do um, is to keep freezing fees and to go for graduate repayments. Or if you if you read Policy Exchange this morning, it's come up with its own helpful suggestions for how to cut higher education further, authored by none other than um, friend of the show Ian Mansfield, um, including cuts to further cuts to maintenance, um, further cuts to high value subjects, things like that, which look grimly plausible in this environment. Oh yes, I'd forgotten about that. So, uh, oh, oh my days. Yes. So, Ian Mansfield in Policy Exchange. I mean, there's a wider report on in Policy Exchange about how to save money. But um, here's the here's the recipe, folks. So. Um, a longer freeze to the repayment threshold that obviously brings more people in each year. That's the graduate repayment threshold. It's currently frozen for a little while. He wants to freeze it for a bit longer. But then for universities, um, k- killing off or at least reducing high cost subject funding. So that's stuff like, uh, creative arts, uh, or media studies or whatever. Uh, killing off or reducing spend on the overseas study program. Even more cuts to UniConnect. 
um, getting rid of the premium for student outcomes. That's the magic money twig that DFE always waggles around when any, whenever anyone says what you're doing for students. So, uh, and replacing that with universities have to fund that from APPs, um, or getting rid of all of the capital funding allocation. There's hardly any capital there now, but getting rid of the capital funding allocation. So just when you thought there was nothing left to cut, uh, Ian knows uh, how to cut it even further. And I note that they're also recommending removing the requirement for police officers to have a degree element of their training. Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, we, we should also note, um, it's still grim, unfortunately, the return of Suella Braveman to home educate, uh, to Home Secretary, however temporary that m- might end up uh, being, there's been a huge row about the ministerial code has kicked off. As we n- as we know, Im- immediately before she's um, resigned, there was an a- announcement all lined up about student visas and student dependent uh, visas. Um, I'm not seeing a world in which that makes sense in a supposedly newly sensible Sunak. Um, administration. I mean, obviously, we need to um, we need to be open for international students. These are postgraduate research students, often incredibly highly skilled, and with families who they might quite want to spend some time with as they work in the UK. Um, so that is still very much up in the air. It's difficult to say what's going on. We should also note that the expected Halloween uh, fiscal event, possibly the worst branding for a party ever, um, is uh, now moved across to the 17th. That has an impact on the OBR calculations. It's reckoned in a few places that this means that the amount of debt that we need to pay down is lower, which is caveated good news, I think, for the sector and for public spending more generally. But we're still looking at something like a £35 billion black hole. So the comments of there's no money um, left, um, that is accurate, but it needs to be balanced um, with the idea that if we are serious about um, overhauling and revamping the, the skills system, then that is going to cost and the money needs to be found for that from somewhere. I think there is something a bit more positive to say. Uh, I mean, when I say a bit more, I mean a little bit more um, about the R&D prospects. And, um, you know, Grant Chaps, well, who knows what Grant Chaps going to do with the Bayes role, but it's got to be, it's frankly got to be an improvement um, on, on where we briefly were with, with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah, yeah. It's not hard, so, is it? Yeah. Uh, um, I think we have to be in a stronger position with Grant Chaps having the um, unenviable task of trying to defend the R&D budget. Um, and I think that is, there is a glimmer of hope there. Um Obviously, the, the mm. also, I mean, it's, it, base portfolio is energy now, but but there is a glimmer of hope that R and D may the argument may be made for R and D as a as an engine of growth, and I think that is a manifesto commitment to get to the two point four percent of GDP spent on R and D. And um, if we are to believe what we're hearing that that the um, the government is now returning to its 2019 manifesto, then um, there is a, a glimmer of hope there. Yeah, I yeah, I think I think I think there's some expectation that the the target may get kind of longer so it take longer to get there but not a significant reversal. So um I mean that said uh 
Grant Shapps and his alter ego as, as, as Michael Green knows all about get rich quick schemes. So maybe, you know, he might even, might, might have one for, for Whitehall. That'd be good. Right. On that cheery note, uh, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. This blog summarises a report from Heat which shows that attainment raising outreach has not in the past been targeted towards lower attaining learners who are most in need of help with their attainment. So why is that? Well, there are competing priorities at play here. On the one hand, the OFS say we have a moral duty to help raise school attainment and add to this the current cost of living crisis and there's clearly a need. But on the other hand, individual providers are held to account by the OFS for their access gaps and must reduce these gaps over time. For most providers, engaging lower attaining learners will not help improve these gaps. And this is particularly true for higher tariff providers. More guidance is therefore needed from the OFS to ensure this policy reaches those for whom it is intended. Finally, and perhaps most concerning, is that our data revealed that UniConnect partnerships are most likely to engage lower attaining learners. Will the opportunities for these learners therefore decline along with the funding for UniConnect? We will be monitoring the situation at heat to see whether opportunities for learners who need them most are in place. Now, Jim, you've been unearthing uh, more cheery news from uh, Whitehall uh, and annexes to documentation. Can <laughs> you uh, to talk us through it? Oh, months ago, you'll, you'll recall the government announced it would give people, um, you know, money off their energy bills and uh, people would have to sort of weirdly pay it back through their energy bills later, although they dropped that side of it. Um, and the question that has kind of been hanging around around all of that is people who aren't kind of traditional householders. So good news is... Um, the energy prices bill has been passed uh, this week, and that will require landlords who have uh, perhaps a group of students in, a, in an HMO to pass the £400 on to those students if the landlord is the bill payer. Now, landlords might say, oh, dear, well, my costs have gone up since I signed the contract. And of course... You know, I think other people would say, well, you shouldn't sign students up so early then. Um, but 400 quid uh, going to have to go to students. And, and universities and student unions are going to have a job on, I think, to, to sort of promote that and um, advise students on how to kind of prize it from the, from the hands of their landlords. But that leaves a different kind of bill payer. Now, if you think about it, right, some people aren't in traditional sort of domestic energy situations, right? They might live on a caravan park or, um, you know, they might be in a care home or, you know, there's all sorts of interest, you know, people in that situation, including students in halls, both university and private halls. And, and, and so the government consulted over the summer on those sorts of people and made an explicit commitment for those sorts of people to find a way to give them the 400 quid. Now, I've been thinking at the back of my mind all summer, they're surely not going to give 400 quid to every student in halls. So I, I've been dimly thinking about this, but as, as the weeks have gone on, I've been thinking more and more about it. And, and, and as the legislation for the Energy Prices Bill have been through the Lords this week, I've intensified my efforts at getting answers out of government departments. Now, as usual, DfE points at Bays and Housing and Levelling Up points at Bays. And Bays have been basically saying, yeah, I'll come back to you in a couple of hours and then not coming back to me for, I don't know, five days in a row or something. So, so, the, so last night, I look at the impact assessment for the bill where... 
um, you know, there's a list of different types of these kind of non-domestic energy arrangements, and they've forgotten students in halls. They've forgotten the circa 550,000 students in halls. Now, look, I don't know whether that's deliberate or whether that is accidental and they've just forgotten that group of people, despite the fact that they identified them in the consultation. But, you know, clearly on one level that's outrageous because that group of uh, citizens is now pretty much the only group of citizens in the entire country that isn't going to get a version of that 400 quid. But it potentially also says quite a few really interesting things about the way the state thinks about, categorises, notices, bothers about students specifically and young people in general. Right. Um, Well, that's not good. It sounds to me like the sector should uh, be raising this as much as anyone because um, if students can't pay their bills, that's bad uh, for them and that's bad for the universities and bad bad for everyone. Um, uh, but where do we go from here, Caroline? Well, I mean, it's great to see this issue being raised at Wonky because it's not one that I've heard widely discussed in the sector, and I think we we haven't really um, been shining a spotlight on it. So I think it's 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 shocking. I mean. I was reflecting with a, a friend the other day that when I went to university, because I'm very, very old, um, in those days, I, I, I had a grant to go to university. We, we had all sorts of help. We had benefits in the summer if we weren't working. We had all sorts of amazing opportunities. Now our own students are really having to make sacrifices and struggle to get through. We're currently in my own university giving students free hot meals twice a week just to make sure that they're eating. And that's a world away from from the universities that people of my age experienced. So to have this added to the financial burden that they're already dealing with, and as we've heard earlier, the, the prospect of a very long-term debt at the end of it, um, you know, it's it's really not helpful. But, but university, for all of that, is still a brilliant thing to do. And that's why people are going to such great lengths to to do it, because they recognise it's a brilliant experience and will really help them throughout their lives. So, you know, we've constantly got this push-pull um, to, to, to really welcome people into university, but at the same time, it's becoming more and more um, of a challenge to just get through that. So I agree that the, the sector, I'd like to see the sector really um, picking up this issue and um, making sure that it's addressed. It, it is weird how students just keep getting forgotten in this, this kind of stuff. I mean, I, I, it, not having any, any government department responsible for student issues at all is, is, I guess, kind of the problem here because everyone can just point the finger at the, you can say, well, there's a housing issue, go to the Ministry of Housing. It's a energy issue go to bays it's a education issue go to dfe and they just kind of keep pointing the finger don't they yeah housing is another one of these issues it's just um it's become like there's never going to be any policy in this area because you have to get three or four different departments all uh to agree for me in, on this particular issue of energy prices i think there is a longer term issue here that we need to be thinking about as well as the short term obviously if students are out of pocket as regards energy prices while they're living in halls then they need to be compensated that is unarguable um the entire system here it's incredibly short term for the nature of the problem if 
like me, you've been uh, taking an, uh, taking an unhealthy interest in wholesale spot uh, gas prices recently, you'll know that gas prices at the moment in Europe are very, very low. They even were lower than zero for a short period this month um, in Holland. Um, this is because um, Europe more generally has been great at just kind of buying up all of the gas reserves. You've seen elements of this in the UK, they're not done quite as well. And there's actually an oversupply of LPG. There's literally uh, container ships that are queuing up outside Rotterdam, etc., waiting to offload a load of gas that we haven't actually got anywhere to put at the moment is quite something. Now, uh, because uh, the gas prices charge the consumer is um, actually is actually um, based on a series of uh, effectively uh, effectively bets on gas prices that the power companies made back in the summer, prices are not going to go down immediately, but they will come down. And this is, um, this means that the whole scheme will be cheaper for the government this year, which might take pressure off, uh, the need to find spending cuts elsewhere. The problem, however, as you probably guessed by now, is next year is next winter. Um, we spent a lot of money on buying all this, um, gas that is, uh, currently in all of the storage and all of the pipe packing and all the rest of stuff that they do. Um, and we, we're going to have to do it all again next winter. Um, in all honesty, I don't think anybody's looking to start, um, buying, uh, gas from Russia again in the near future. So, um, all of these efforts, including all of the university efforts to lock in their gas prices need to be done again this year for next winter. It's going to be absolutely more expensive. And that one, um, next year is going to make this winter look like a picnic, I'm afraid. And uh, now it's time for the hidden history of higher education with Mike Ratcliffe. Expanding our universities is one of those things that has been an issue all the way through the history. How do we, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that there comes a point where government needs to expand our universities uh, and think about how it wants to organise that? Now, less own a market type system, but when we had planning bodies, how should we do that? Now, the biggest set of expansion came straight after the Second World War, where um, they knew in advance that returning students were going to come back. Um, either they'd already gone off to war, they'd been off into a variety of different occupations, and they were going to want to have higher education. The Americans handled this through their uh, GI Bill, um, but we set about just expanding our universities. The interesting bit is that he started planning for this in act, you know, active way in 1943. So before we've even invaded Normandy, the British university sector is planning to have won the war and how it's going to cope with all the students who are going to come back. So excellent planning from the UGC. Um, and off it goes. It works out that actually it doesn't really need to expand the number of universities because most of the universities it's been funding have been really small all the way through the 30s. Um, again, if we think we have trouble now try running a university through the Great Depression when most of the students have to pay their fees. So they've not expanded as much as they thought, so they were ready for them all to expand. The only difference is 
that um, the chair of the UGC, Walter Mobley, is persuaded uh, to let the University College of North Staffordshire start. And so A.D. Lindsay uh, persuades him that it would be a really good idea to set up a new kind of university. And Mobley is very concerned about um, how the war has gone, how it's impacted on universities, and he thinks we need new types of students. Uh, and so they're allowed to run a four-year course, predominantly residential, um, uh, an opportunity to have a foundation course at the minute. So it's trying to do something different. And they get going and everyone else starts to expand. And then we go through the 50s, just slowly upgrading universities. So the university colleges become universities. They all expand. There's a bit of a backlash if you think about um, Kingsley Amis and Lucky Jim and his more means worse thing. Um, but generally, this is the idea that we can continue. By the end of the decade, it's clear we need more universities. They accede to a bid from Sussex to set up a new university college at Brighton. But then, um, having got to that stage, they have a pause and think it's probably worth having a think about setting up new types of universities. And then starts this marvellous thing, this bidding competition to have universities. So I thought we might stop at that kind of point and then move on to the next one. So, so the bidding competition to have new universities is an excellent a really exciting example of how British university planning worked. They set up a subcommittee. Great and the good come on the subcommittee. They happily uh, sit together and work out what they should do. Now, people have been writing in saying, hello, can I have a university for a while now? So they've got a file already of towns and cities that said, can we have a university, please? So they're ready to go. So they've got a, a group of people they can contact and say, are you still interested in having a university? And they work out what the criteria are for having a good university. It needs plenty of land in order to expand. It needs to have good access to schools so that staff uh, will come and let their kids um, go to those schools. Um, it needs to have a certain amount of industry nearby and communications to other universities, but there's no kind of fixed uh, idea of what they should do. They also don't have a fixed idea of where they should be so they just let the applications come in and then sort them out. So um, different local authorities spring up with ideas and write in, sending in their different um, uh, bids, some from rather unlikely places. So for quite a long time, the one making the running in the northwest was Blackpool. We're going to have the University of Blackpool. Um, that attracted quite a lot of uh, comment because Blackpool was a slightly challenging place. Um, and so people... Uh, you know, had different views on this. Uh, and the best bit of that is someone who cheerfully wrote into the UGC saying, um, I think, um, he says, I beg to strongly oppose the current suggestion that a university for the northwest of England should be established at or on the outskirts of Blackpool. A university is supposed to be a place where young people absorb culture and learning, not spivery and paganism. And he goes on to say that he can't imagine a worse place to put a university apart from Soho. Uh, and now it turns out that uh, Lancashire um, starts to move more in the direction of uh, uh, Lancaster itself. Um, they acquire some land at Bellrig and Lancaster gets a nod over Blackpool. But we go through these independent writing in exercises. So there's a, um, a businessman who's driving past Stamford in Lincolnshire uh, uh, and he hears that um, the, the 
people at Stanford might be quite interested in having a university there. One of the places that had a, a university suppressed in the Middle Ages. And he gets really involved in this. Uh, and he effectively becomes the leading light of this constant bid to have a university for Stanford. And they get quite a long way down the, the thinking. One of the key reasons is that Stanford's uh, got a new bypass, so it's got plenty of land. Uh, it's been redeveloped, and you can think about having a university. And there's a whole published report on why it would be a good thing for the University of Stanford to get going. Uh, and these keep going through. So there's a, a bid for uh, a university at Glastonbury. Uh, this nice chap writes in and says it'd be great to build a new university city of Avalon next to Glastonbury um, and create a new university city. Uh, now, he doesn't get anyone else supporting him, but there on the UGC file is his nice letter and the very polite letter back from the uh, the civil servants of the UGC saying, well, that's that's very interesting. Do, do follow up with some more details. So you go through these kind of stages and, and there is a long list of places that at some point are considered to have a new university, some of whom that's fine. They get they go and get their university. So we have uh, bids from Bournemouth and Carlisle and Chatham and Chester. And uh, there's uh, one from Coventry, which is obviously quite successful. But Plymouth and Salisbury and Stanford and Stevenage and Thanet. Thanet is one of the ones that makes one of the early running again, uh, but in the end is is passed over in terms of of Canterbury. So you get this kind of wonderful pickup of these things, and the files are just great as you go through them, uh, and you get this different information sent in by these people trying to say, well, can we have a university place? So the best correspondence I found on the file is from the Swindon people. So the Swindon people start by this very apologetic letter from the town clerk saying, um, people in Swindon have asked me to write. I'm not sure personally about doing this, um, but, but what's the process? Um, and then he kind of gets more into it and the Swindon say, well, one of the things we want to do is, is deal with the fact that there's a perception that we're quite a dreary town and a university might be quite good for us. So they, they kind of talk about how this might go through. And his correspondence backwards and forwards uh, goes on and on over about four years because cause they don't quite get going in time. Uh, and slowly, you know, it's clear that other people are getting their universities uh, but but they're not. So by the end, when it's quite clear that there aren't going to be any more universities, this is this is sad little letter in from the town clerk uh, to the UGC. Um, Please do not groan too deeply when you receive this letter. I'm not going to harass you. I know that nothing can be done until the government announcement has been made about new universities. Uh, and he goes on to say, well, we've, we, perhaps we could use a new bit of land. It might be a better bet for, for our new Swindon University. Uh, and he ends it in a sad little sign-off. Now, please don't toss this into the waste paper basket. Now, the good news is that it was all dutifully considered by the UGC. It's still lovingly kept on the file. Uh, Swindon did not get to have its university. Uh, the cut-off had come and the government had changed its mind on how many universities it wanted because at that point um, the uh, new Labour government decides that's it no more universities Uh, we're going to stop approving them we've got enough students uh, into the planning period uh, and we'll have no more Hey it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out Quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Right, UCU has uh, been successful in its uh, national ballot for a strike. DK, what's going on? So this has been coming for a long, long while. You've probably seen a lot of the um, UCU rising uh, campaign, which looks to have been a spectacularly effective uh, campaign. Um, the University and College of Union has reached the threshold for national action on both pay and conditions and on uh, pensions. And these two campaigns are linked this time round. This means that they ha- have the chance to call coordinated strikes in the 150 institutions that they, um, that, that they, um, actually balloted. Uh, the talk at the moment appears to be that this is looking like a short targeted piece of strike action in November and uh, some more in February and a marking boycott in the summer, which is obviously designed to put employers under maximum uh, pressure. The fact that the strikes are not starting immediately or near immediately is interesting because um, UCU have been clear that they're looking to employers in the form of those in the USS scheme and um, those represented by um, UCA to come back to the table and make some more offers before the strike action is um, formally uh, called. We will know more on this on uh, the th- 31st there is um a national meeting on that taking into account the views of members but it does look like we're on for another set of strike action in november in february and potentially further afield caroline it's it's a it's a it's, it sounds like that's kind of it's going to be a difficult year ahead uh with, with lots of industrial action is there is do you think there's anything the sector can do at this point collectively to head that off or do you think things have just got to a point now where people are too unhappy particularly with the last uh pay settlements it's really difficult isn't it i um i mean i i think one of one of my concerns about all of this is actually about the the public narrative and public perception of universities, which has been going down, um, down and down for all sorts of reasons for about the last five years or so, um, and I think that's really damaging to us. And I think although this this um, dispute has been coming for a long time and is actually in tune with all the other um, uh, union disputes that we're hearing about at the moment, whether it's in the public sector or well, particularly in the public sector, actually, you know, barristers, nurses, um, everybody else. But um, I think the timing of this is potentially really unfortunate with the um, the new government and the precarious position of universities as it is. And as we said, the real problem is that there just isn't enough money. So, um, yeah, I... I, I I think it's really difficult. I think there is a public perception still in some places that that universities are, you know, awash with with cash, and that 
lecturers are really highly paid and everybody's very comfortable. And I think if that narrative is still around, then the potential damage of this action to our, our standing in the eyes of the public is, is even worse, actually, um, because that isn't the truth. Um, and, and academic staff are really, really tired and professional services staff, they're still really tired. They've been dealing with all sorts of things over the last few years. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as a result of the pandemic and the changes that have arisen since then. And, um, you know, they're also dealing with all the other broader contextual issues of the cost of living crisis that we've talked about. So I don't know what the answer is, to be honest. Um, I think it's a really difficult, difficult situation. Mm. I mean, Jim, isn't part of the problem here that it's a, it's a national action, but, you know, things are felt differently in, in different parts of the sector. So, you know, U- UCU says that, you know, universities can, can choose to pay their staff more. And, and that kind of is true with universities that have a lot of money in the bank, but a lot of universities don't and can't choose to do that. So, um, it's sort of tricky to tricky to tackle this not on a national level, particularly given that the the kind of national pay bargain is is isn't you know is is, is sort of frayed around the edges, and that some universities have chosen to do you know one off things and 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 give different different terms. Yes, although I think that's interesting. So so obviously when you've got a branch by branch uh, threshold and a branch by branch kind of you know a, a, a approach to the action. Um, it makes sense for there to be kind of local deals, right? And and, and it's, it's, that that is trickier to do given given this tactic. I mean, look, I do start from the position of of thinking inflation is up at ten percent, and you know there are plenty of members of UCU that are pretty precariously employed on pretty low wages. So you know, I mean, of course, it's easy to think of. You know, I don't know, professorial stuff or whatever. But I mean, you know, this is difficult. I think the hard part for me and the thing that I keep thinking about is clearly in any industrial dispute, the employer says we ain't got any money. And the trade union says, yeah, but look, you have, you know, if you look at the kind of rail disputes, then, you know, the, 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 the rail unions will be talking, will be looking at the kind of profits that are made by, uh, the train operating companies and so on and so on. I think the really difficult thing about this one is that the, 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 the respective perceptions of how much money is available to settle this dispute are so far apart that I, I can't understand how they would get to a point where they're able to resolve it because you know, th- th- those respective p- positions, to some extent, you know, on, and I don't want to get into who's done this more, but to some extent on both sides really ramped up to the max. Um, mean that it's really hard to understand how a kind of, um, resolution can be found. But, but, and, and, and I do think that's interesting because if I look at all of the other public sector rows this winter, and one of the things that I would say is don't forget we've potentially got a nursing strike coming and that is a bit, that will have a big impact on students and on placements and on all the universities that kind of do nursing education. But if I look at all the other kind of trade, the public sector unions, of course, in the end, they're, they're having a pop at the government. And, 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 and I do think it, we are in a strange position where it's universities themselves that have become the kind of public enemy. And don't get me wrong, absolutely no doubt that, that some have got plenty of money and some, you know, the tactics have been problematic and whatever. But it's, it's, it's vice chancellors that are put right front and centre as the enemy rather than 
government in a situation where not five minutes ago we were talking about, you know, a former advisor to ministers talking about even more cuts that can be made to HE. I mean, you know, it's just very strange, I think. It is classic divide and real stuff, really, isn't it? Um, I do want to quickly put to bed the canard that if your university has a large cash balance it can afford to pay more in uh, salaries this unfortunately is not the case Uh, people like to have their salaries paid every year Uh, cash is basically you treat it as a capital it's there once you spend it you might not getting back the the number you need to look at is the operating profit of your university, how much money it reliably makes each year from being a university. And that is the, the, the margin from which you can start arguing that the government, that the university can afford to pay more in salaries. If, of course, it's not all already using that surplus to service Debt or to pay for increased costs elsewhere in its um, running costs. Now, UCAS is out with its data from the 15th of October deadline. Uh, Caroline, talk us through the highlights. So the highlight that might first catch your eye is a slight reduction in applications, down 3% so far, which um, in, that's in the UK 18-year-old applications compared to last year. But actually, if you look a little bit behind that top-line figure, um, you find that we've still got a really, really high number of applicants. So 15% higher than 2019 and a full 42% higher than 2012. So there's a definite upward trajectory here, um, but with a slight dip on the peak of last year, which seems to be really confirmed as a kind of COVID anomaly um, that, that's been going on for the last two years of, of people responding to extraordinary circumstances by behaving in different ways. But um, so I think this is really encouraging news that we are seeing some sort of, dare I say, a return to normality in terms of patterns of behaviour, although it's obviously a different normality um, than the one we had before, if that makes any sense at all. Um, there are a lot of counter pulls going on in this, though, because it's quite interesting to see that the number of of mature students dropping. Um, that seems to be UCAS are suggesting that that's to do with the number of job vacancies that are available for those students who might have thought about going back into education, but are actually finding they've got plenty of jobs available to go there instead. Um, at the same time, we know we've got a skills shortage and the demographic upturn in the number of 18-year-olds is leading to a much bigger pool of eligible people looking to go to university. And there, there's a pr- suggestion in Claire Marchant's blog that we're going to be needing um, a, a million, seeing a million applicants um, within the next 10 years, which is quite a staggering figure. And the other thing just to mention on that data is that we've got for the first time analysis of um, different, we know different information about student applicants than we've had before and about their personal circumstances. So we're seeing data on carers, estranged students, parents, service children, veterans, free school meal recipients and refugees and asylum seekers. And that data will be really, really useful to the sector in um, and indeed to the OFS, but to the sector in particular and making sure that we've got the right support available 
um, to make sure that those students come into university and have uh, a brilliant experience and, and excellent outcomes. So it's, it's, it's interesting, is it, this data is decay, but there's quite a long time to go on this cycle. So things could, the picture could change. Yeah, this is very early stages. This is applications to Oxford, to Cambridge, to medical and dentistry and veterinary medicine uh, courses and a couple of other things as well it's about uh 10 of our cycles uh total applicants so we're this is very much the first slice and it's not as if you listen to that list of places it's not a representative slice it's um going to over uh sample and it does students from more advantaged backgrounds with um lightly uh better predicted grades and prior attainment that are going to go on to these uh, places. So it's not representative overall. The story for me here is, uh, counterintuitively, uh, uh, growth. Um, we tend to talk about recruitment cycles in terms of the proportion of particular groups of society that go to university. Those proportions have been, uh, uh, rising over the past 10 years. They'll probably continue to rise, but much more slowly over the next 10. Uh, the underpinning thing, though, is, as Caroline mentioned, was the demographic increase in the number of 18-year-olds, which is the um, the largest constituent of people who are applying through UCAS, although obviously there are changes to that and more people are coming back as mature students. Uh, the number of students entering um, universities is going to rise substantially over the next decade unless the uh, government does something even more um, even more radical and even more short-termist than the policy exchange proposals. We do still need to be thinking seriously about investing in capacity of the sector. As I've argued on the site before, we can't just expect the market to sit there and uh, to take it. Uh, the story is growth and uh, the sector needs to be prepared for that growth. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. And don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Acast, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that goes on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks very much to Caroline, Jim and DK and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay wonky. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.